Good morning. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. I'm glad two of you did. The rest of you must have been with family. (laughs) Oh, I'm just kidding. Not really, but I am. Okay, moving along. Glad you're here this morning, and uh, I sure hope that uh, you're just enjoying being with other followers and believers in Christ today as we come together to worship God and to join together in uh, learning from His Word. So if you would, I'm going to have a word of prayer just quickly as we begin, asking God to do what only He can do, and that's to help us understand His Word. Father God, we are grateful this morning, Lord, for Your love for us. And Lord, as we sang that song together, uh, Lord, it's an amazing thing that You have provided for us in Your salvation, that You did save a wretch like me, like many of us here today, Lord, where You've saved us. And God, it's Your It's your will, it's your plan, it's your design, God. Your salvation is something that you provided. It's not anything we did in and of ourselves or could do that no man could accomplish this, but only through Christ, God, have we come to know what it means to be a child of God. And God, we are grateful for that today. Lord, my prayer as always is that, Father, your Holy Spirit, God, would speak to each and every heart here today. I want to thank you, Lord, that, uh, Father, that your word is eternal that, uh, Father, it is alive, that it's active, that it's truth, and, uh, Lord, that we need your Holy Spirit to help us understand. And, Lord, today as we come to a difficult passage of Scripture that many Christians throughout the centuries have acted totally ignorant in the way that they've treated one another because of their disagreement over a certain passage, God, I pray today that that would not be the case, but that your Holy Spirit would just simply help us to see the truth of your Word for what it says that we know as Christians that we are to come under the Word of God, not place it under our feet, but we are to come under your Word. And so, Lord, we're going to do that today as you teach us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 9 once again, and uh, we're going to begin. I'm going to read this to us one more time this week, and maybe next week, and maybe the week after that. I'm not sure how quick we're going to get through this. To be honest with you, I'd have liked to have done one message and moved right on. Um, but that's not where we're at today. Um, I don't know about you, but I do enjoy smorgasbords or buffets. Anybody go eat a buffet for Thanksgiving? Did anybody do that? You're kidding me. Nobody did? Two or three of you did. What is the greatest thing about a buffet? Number one, you can eat all you want, right? And number two, you can eat what you like, Right? Uh, We had that similar experience for our Thanksgiving meal as we met together with family. Uh, There's so many things to choose and eat from, uh, and all of my kids are different. They all like different things. If you have kids here today, you know what that's like when you drive through a drive-thru. Yeah, it's enjoyable, especially if you're at the driver's seat in the window. Yeah. Everybody wants something different, and that's the way we are. But when we come to the Word of God... We can in no way address the Word of God as a smorgasbord or a buffet. Whereas we simply come and read the Word of God, we select a portion from a passage we like, and we reject a passage, and we move on from this passage, and we we simply hold on to this one. We, We have to come to the Word of God and just take the Word of God for what it says. I have to be honest with you, there's a lot of people that do not like Romans chapter 9. Um, A lot of Christians throughout the centuries have argued and debated over Romans chapter 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. They've they've fought, they've squabbled, uh, they've uh, acted totally arrogant and ignorant, many of them, in the way that they've defended what they believe Romans chapter 9 truly teaches. So this morning, um, I'm just going to share with you what the Word of God says. I don't entirely understand it all. I think it would do well if other men of God, preachers, would admit they just don't understand everything. But unfortunately, they cannot do that, many of them. Uh, But that's just the way it is. And there are men that have studied this passage and have debated over it. And you could read commentary after commentary after commentary. But the truth is, they're simply still just men. And there's some things in Scripture you have to understand. You're just not going to fully grasp and understand. And so Romans 9 is kind of that way. Although as we begin to break this down and as we follow along with the Apostle Paul as he teaches now some doctrines here. By the way, this chapter does not affect 
my salvation. We can disagree and still get along. Is that true? Um, If you gather with family this year for Thanksgiving, I will promise you there's those family members that you don't agree with, but you tolerate and you can get along. And this is an example of that passage. Whereas Christians, although we might disagree on what Paul the Apostle is truly teaching here, we still can get along. Because in no way does this completely strip us of the gospel message being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It doesn't strip any of those things away. But as I study this and have studied it and continue to study Romans chapter 9, I'm going to do the best I can with the help of the Holy Spirit to just share with you what it says, and then we're going to just let it be what it is. And when I get to heaven, I can ask God more about it, about why he did certain things and why he didn't make certain things the way that I wish he would have, but he did. Because he's God. Because we understand, as it says in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 55, talked about this last week, for... My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we we are going to address this passage as we come to it this morning, just like we talked about last week. We're not going to come with a spiritual air. I'm not going to teach you an ism. I'm not here to teach you an ism whether it's Calvinism or, or dispensationalism. I'm not interested in teaching you an ism. I'm here today to teach you the word of God. That's all I want to teach you. So we're not going to get caught in isms. We're simply going to lay it out for you this morning. Not long ago, I was riding uh, down at the river, at the Red River, and I had a horse that I was just riding down there to take some of the edge off of him. And we were way back in there on some trails along the river, riding in the sand. And we come to this trash can, and, and he saw it before I did because his ears perked up. And, of course, he's paying attention because everything out there is going to eat him. And so he sees it from a distance, and he's looking at it. And uh, as I get closer, I mean, he's, he's beginning to, his body language is beginning to express to me that he doesn't like what is up there. And he begins to try to skirt around the issue that's in front of him. He didn't like the smell because it's full of beer cans. He probably didn't know much about that smell. It's a little different than the water he's been drinking at my house. And so he he smells these weird smells, and he sees something that entirely in his mind is probably going to be some some goblin that's going to eat him alive. And so he's beginning to prance and scoot to the side. And what he wanted to do was he simply was okay as long as he was going to skirt around that can by a long ways. And I'll be honest with you, today, there is that desire in some of us that we just want to skirt around this issue. We want to act like, okay, I don't like it, I don't understand it, I'm not really sure about it, so let's just go around. And many people have done that through the centuries. In fact, some men that I highly esteem as being what I would consider to be great theologians or teachers have actually been silent as I've pursued looking up what their opinion was or what they believe the Word of God taught concerning Romans 9. It's a safe place to be, but that's not where we're at this morning. I believe we're going to be safe no matter what we do, as long as we address it with God's help, and in humility we approach this passage. Amen? So here we are. Let me read it with you. Romans 9, starting in uh, verse 1, we're going to read this. It'll take us just a second to, to move down through here. But I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Word of God has weight It is alive, it is God's truth, and we need to listen to it and let the Word of God sink into our own heart. That's what we need to do. So that's why we're going to read this this morning. Listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is not teaching you a philosophy. He's not interested in what men think, nor am I. We want to know what God says as truth. And the very first thing that Paul says, and we need to get this, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. So although some commentators say that the Apostle Paul got Romans chapter 9 wrong, well then they've got a major problem. Because Paul tells us as a called apostle of God, chosen by God, set apart from birth, set apart unto the work of God, taught by Christ himself, the Apostle Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. And he moves forward and says this, I am not lying. 
My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ Jesus, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In chapter 11, Paul says this is a mystery. And Paul is trying to explain to us this mystery. You remember the early disciples, the apostles themselves, other than, than, than Paul himself, they really struggled with the concept that Gentiles were coming to faith. They struggled with that because they thought it was all for the nation of Israel, for the people of God. But God made it very, very clear in what he was doing to the Gentiles. They were coming to faith in Christ, and he was saving them by his grace and his mercy. And so this is a mystery, and Paul says, we're, we're, I'm just sharing with you what God has done here and why this is so very important. He says, not all who are descended from Israel are, are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. He says, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. He's using scripture as he's pulling these things out. In other words, it is not natural children who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was the promise and how it was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. We talked about her last week and why this was such a miracle because she was barren. She was 90 years of age and, and, and he was 100. And this was an impossibility with, with man. But God promised this would happen. And salvation is one of those things that no man can attain in and of himself. It is solely a work of God in Christ Jesus by his grace and by his mercy. No man climbs the ladder to God and then says, God, you owe me salvation because I made my way to you. We stand before God completely humbled by the fact that God did what we could not do that we deserve the payment of our sin, which it says the wages of our sin is death, that we know that we were destined for hell because of our sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, did something for you. He sent his son, gave his life, took upon himself your sin, died in your place. He paid the penalty of your debt, and he offers you his righteousness so that you could be in Christ and you could know this salvation. You didn't do anything to deserve this, and frankly, you did nothing to earn it. God, out of his love for you, did this for you. Amen. Bless you, by the way. Yes. <clears throat> what an incredible thing. Then he moves on and says this. Not only that, but Rebecca's children, moving down through the patriarchs here, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, we find this in Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but solely on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God, who, is, who has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But you, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed same t- say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does the potter not have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some pottery for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, who he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. That's a pretty amazing passage of Scripture. And once again, as I said last week, we approach this in a very uh, humble and meek manner. As we come to the Word of God, as we get a sneak peek into some of the purposes of God, the mind of God, it's pretty incredible as we make our way here today to see this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it says this, Bear in mind, Peter says, that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. So we understand here, Peter is verifying that what Paul writes is under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that what he's writing to us is the Word of God. And Paul is writing under uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's not sharing with us his opinion on the matter of God's sovereign choice. He's not giving us an opinion here. Um, But he is writing, like he said in verse 1, and speaking it in the truth in Christ. We must come under the word and not place the word under us. And that's something we have to know. Um, It's very interesting to me as you talk to many believers in Christ and Christians, there are those who will tell you uh, that they believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God from cover to cover. They say from Genesis to the book of Revelations, I believe absolutely everything that's in here. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. But then when we come to another passage of scripture that's difficult for us to understand, all of a sudden they buck their bridle off. (laughs) And all of a sudden, there's something that begins to happen. We begin to twist and turn things to make it fit a theology that we like. That's not what we're to do. I don't have to like everything in here. I don't have to understand everything in here. But I simply have to take it for what it says and say, God, so be it, your will be done. Because maybe God knows things that I don't know. And I'm thankful that he does. Paul has just finished with the incredible truths of chapter 8. How many of you love chapter 8? Boy, I love chapter 8. Chapter 8 was an incredible truth. All the things that we are in Christ, and there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and how if God is for us, who can be against us? That nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. And all the things he goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on to talk about. What an unbelievable thing. And so as Paul comes to Romans chapter 9, he understands and knows that when he shares the things he's going to share here, it's going to create now some arguments or some questions in the minds of those who read this. They're going to struggle with some of the things that Paul is going to say. Therefore, he's got some arguments in here to address the questions that he already knows is going to take place. You find those in verse 6, 14, and verse 19. And today we're going to look at uh, the one in verse 14, which will be the second one. Last week we addressed the first issue, the fact that there are those that were going to say, well, since Israel has rejected Christ, then somehow, some way, the word of God has been a failure. That God has failed in keeping his promises to the nation of Israel. Because God swore these things in a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and also to Jacob. 
And now here we are, they could be reading this and saying, what about the Jews? Paul says, I wish that I would even be cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, if that was possible, because they've rejected the Messiah as a whole, as a nation. And there's those that would argue and say, well, then, see, God's word's not true. He didn't keep his promise to the nation of Israel. How in the world do you think he's going to keep the promises you just told us in chapter 8? Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. God's word has not failed. Let me explain to you why the word of God will never fail, why it's true, and what really has been taking place and what has happened. And then we will learn what's coming in the future, why God's promise to Israel is not a failure. It is perfect, and it's happening just the way he said it would happen. It's incredible if you think about it. So he goes through Abraham. He gets down to Isaac. He's moving his way through the patriarchs, and, and today we're going to look um, at this second argument. But before we do, we're going to have to address something. We're going to have to address uh, the passage of Scripture here in Romans 9, 10 through 18. So read it with me again, and we're going to address this question. This is what Paul says. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father. We know that Abraham had other wives. He had, he had his first wife, uh, that he took as a maidservant, had his first son Ishmael. We know that we have his second wife. Obviously, Sarah was his wife, and then he married uh, Keturah after Sarah died. So he had more children than just Isaac for the son, but he was the son of promise. And so all the other ones that he had were not of the promise of God. They were not descended of Israel. They were not the chosen. They were not that. God says, listen, I'm going to show you something here. I'm going to do what you and no one else can do, you're going to have a son, but he's the promised son. I'm going to make this happen. And we went through this last week, and now we're going to come to Isaac and Rebekah, who have two sons that are twin sons. They have two sons born from Isaac and Rebekah, not, not different wives, but the husband and wife here. And now he's going to begin to break this down, and he's going to move them through this process to make his point about God's election, about God is doing what God is doing, and why it's so incredible for every one of us that is in Christ and all who will come to believe in Christ. Why is this truth so absolutely amazing? It makes you full of humility. It makes you awe and wonder at the mercy and the grace of God in your life. It is absolutely overwhelming to me to think that God in his sovereignty has done this for me and for you. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. And so he goes on and says, talking about the children of Rebekah, they had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, they'd never made a decision They'd never made an act. They'd never done anything. They'd never even had taken their first breath while they were still in the womb of the mother before anything had ever happened whatsoever. It says this, in order, Paul says, that God's purpose in election might stand that it's not by works, but it is by him who calls. He told the mother, the older will serve the younger. Well, Rebecca, you can imagine hearing that from God. The older always got the birthright and the blessing. He was the firstborn son. God says, but no, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. I want to prove something here. I'm going to show you that my salvation has got nothing to do with the works of man. Nothing but only solely on the calling of God Almighty. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to reject the firstborn son who is to receive the blessing and the birthright of the father. He will be the one that carries on the family. He will be the patriarch that moves along. God says, no, I'm going to show you something about what I'm doing here. I'm going to reject the firstborn son before he did anything good or did anything bad, and I'm going to do something different. I'm going to choose the second-born son. That's what I'm going to do. Because I want for you to know that when God is doing what God is doing, that it's not about the works of man that brings salvation to mankind. See, when you get to heaven, this is the most incredible thing. There are believers out there that think God owes them heaven. 
because somehow their works have made it that God is liable to them that he has to do something for them because they have done something for him. That is not the gospel. The gospel is this, ma'am, sir, you can do nothing about your salvation nor your destiny. The reason you can't is because you are lost in sin. You are blind. The Bible says no one seeks God. There's no one who is righteous. The wages of sin is death. But God, what did he do? Did something no man can do. He called you by name. And when he did, he got your attention. And all of a sudden, you were blind and your eyes were open like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. That you were now listening to God for the first time in your life. That you believed that he was Christ, the son of the living God. That you understood you were a wretch like the apostle Paul and like John Newton, the slave trader. You were a wretch and you knew that Christ Jesus and Christ alone was the only way you could be redeemed. And through his blood, he made a way that to be possible. You knew you had no hope in your sin. You knew that. But in Christ, you have completely everything. It's incredible to think that God has done this. God says, I want you to know something here. I'm choosing the second one. I'm passing by the first one. And there's those that say, well, John, it's obviously because God has foreknowledge. Can God know the future from the past, the end, from the beginning? Yes, he can. He's God. But the Bible says here, before they'd ever even done anything. And if you study the character of Jacob... And you study the character of Esau, neither of them are very impressive. In fact, for me as a man, I'd have rather hung out with Esau any day than with Jacob, who was at home with his mom. I'm just being honest with you. And as we begin to look at this, some people say, well, God knew that Jacob was, no, listen, Jacob didn't even know this God yet. It's going to come here in a little while. Why did he come to know this God? Because God did something. He called Jacob. He called him. We don't read about this with Esau, who was, yes, the father of the Edomites. That's what he was. Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel. And all throughout their history, they were warring against one another and they were serving under Israel and everything that God said was going to happen, happened. What's interesting is the Edomites are not even in existence today, but the nation of Israel is. Why is that? Because God said, that's why. Because God chose. God chose this. What an incredible thing to think about. So he says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God unrighteous in doing what he did with Rebekah's children? Paul says, let it not be so. By no means, he says. Smack your forehead and say, duh, that's not possible for God to be unrighteous. Everything he does is just. And then Paul does something interesting. He's not going to talk about philosophy. A lot of times when pastors get together or Christians get together, they want to talk about what they think. That's dangerous. Because what you think and what I think really means nothing when it comes to this. What matters is what this says. It matters only what God says. It doesn't matter what some uh, Tom, Dick, or Harry thinks about this. Because philosophy is something we see going on, has been from the very beginning, goes along to this day. Guys want to talk about all the things they think they know. Well, the truth is, I don't care what you know. I care what God says. That's what I care. So uh, you don't want to know what I think about this. We want to know what God says about this. Because 10 years ago, I thought entirely the opposite way that I think about it today. So that's probably a good thing. We don't go off what John Riggs thinks. We have to go off what the Word of God says. That's my mark. That's where I begin. Or you're going to be off plumb, and your building's going to be crooked, and your doors won't hang right, and your windows won't shut. And it probably going to shake like that screen did all morning and still is, and I don't know why. You all are breathing too hard over there, I'm telling you. I apologize if you're getting woozy. Don't look at that screen. <laughs> we'll get that fixed. One way or another, we'll get that fixed. All right, moving right along. So what shall we say then? Is God unjust? He says, no. He goes all the way back to Genesis to Moses, and he says this, listen. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Very interesting that he says that. So God is not unjust in what he does. Is it true, if we follow the facts of the word of God, that it is evident through scripture that God has more compassion on some than he has on others? Does it appear that way in scripture? Does it appear that God shows his love to some in a different way, more profoundly than he shows to others? Sure he is. And so we're going to look at the facts and just see, was this true? Did God show compassion to Jacob and Esau differently? Did he show mercy to the two of them differently? Did God do that? Because if he did, then we've got to move on here. Paul says, listen, you're going to say that God is unjust in what he's done. That's the argument. And I've known Christians that go complete ape wild over this passage. They want to get in a fist fight like now. First of all, they can't punch through a paper bag, some of them. But anyway, they want to get into it right now over this. Listen to me. That's why Paul says this. Some of you are going to say this, God's unjust. Because we talked about this last week. We say, well, that's not fair. God, that you would choose a second-born son over the first-born son. That is not fair, God. That's not right. You broke the rules, God. Well, God made the rules. He can't break a rule. That's not what God does. He don't break rules. But listen to this. Let's look and see what the Word of God says here. First of all, before either of them had done anything good or bad, God says, that one is going to be the one I'm going to use. That one there, not so much. And this is exactly what happens. He says, I love this one. And he uses a very harsh word. He says, and I hate this one. And I mean, that makes you want to just knock the cowboy head off your neighbor's head right there. Don't do it. It'll get you hit. Don't do that, okay? You don't mess with a man's hat. The truth is, that goes all over us. If you, t- if you read what Spurgeon has to say about this, Spurgeon says, I believe it means exactly what the word hate says it means. Now, when I study the word of God, looking it up here in the Greek, it says to properly, to detest, denounce, to love someone or something less than someone or something else, to renounce one choice in favor of another. That God did that. But God's God's God, and God has a purpose in all that he's done here. And so as we come here to Genesis chapter 25, we're going to see, okay, God, did did you do this, and how did you do this to Jacob and Esau here? What actually went down here? So let's go with Paul. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 25, and let's see what the word of God says about what he did. In verse 22 of 25, it says, The babies jostled each within Rebekah's womb, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you are or will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And we know that, yes, they became two nations, and there's those that would say, well, what he's talking about here is just nations, that God chose this nation over this nation. Let me ask you this question. Why is it that we are the most blessed nation on this planet? Why is it that you were blessed to live in the most free and blessed country in the world? Why is that? America's not blessed solely because it just has such good people in it. America was blessed because it had principles that were of the word of God. It was founded on certain principles that set its course. And God has blessed America for a purpose. We live in this nation. We enjoy this. Why weren't you born in India? Is Ethiopia as blessed as the United States? No. Is Uganda No. Why is America so blessed? Because God's hand was upon America. That's why. And so we can say nations, that God chose one nation over another. Well, that's fine if you want to do that, but your whole argument falls apart because what are nations made of? People. So God would say, okay, those people over there, nah, and those people over there, uh uh-huh. He's talking about two men who would become a nation's. That's what he's talking about. But he's talking about men here in the choosing. Individuals is what he's talking about here. We know something about Jacob here. Jacob and his brother Esau are fighting within the womb, and that wasn't going to end after they were born. 
Esau has been out hunting and he comes in, two brothers. Now I have two boys and you have boys, you know exactly what I'm getting at. Esau comes in from his hunt and he says, man, I got to have something to eat, brother. I'm going to die. You roll your eyes. Dude, you're a long ways from death. You can go 40 days without eating. And if you're that bad of a hunter, you deserve to die, right? He comes in and he's exhausted. You know what Jacob is? I'll cook you some soup, brother. But you better swear to me, you're going to give me your birthright. What do you think his brother did? Yes, man, go ahead. Yes, you can have it. Give me my soup, right? My boys do this stuff all the time. They didn't mean anything they just said. I don't know if Esau even really meant that he would say, oh, yeah, I'll give you my birthright for that bowl of soup. Sure. The reason I don't think he necessarily meant what he said was because he went to his father on his deathbed to get his birthright and his blessing. If he had given that to his brother and swore it by oath, which Scripture says it did, then he wouldn't have even went to the father because he already gave it to the brother. I think there's a little bit of family stuff going on there. That's what I think is going on. And so he gives him his lentil soup. And he's like, ah, I'm going to survive for another three or four hours. But what's interesting to me is at the time of, of Isaac's death, He's an old man. He can barely even see. He's blind. He's old. And all of a sudden, Esau comes in to get it. And he says, hey, I love that meat that you make. That meat you, you know, go to the, out and give me something. Make me a last meal here. So he goes out and kills something. But while he's gone, his mom and Jacob come up with this idea. Listen, we're going to disguise you as your brother. We're going to make him his favorite meal. And you're going to walk into that old man's bedroom and you're going to deceive him. Jacob's like, high five, mom, let's do this thing. It's exactly what happens. He deceives his old, dying father. And the father on his deathbed believes it is the firstborn son whom he loved more than he did Jacob. Mama was Jacob's boy. Jacob, Jacob was mama's boy. And Esau was Isaac's boy. Well, he gives it away. Once you give it away, that thing meant something then. It's done. It's over with. So they're high-fiving back in the kitchen. I got it, mama. I got it, mama. By the way, why did he, isn't it interesting how that happened? God said this was going to happen. Poor old Esau comes in from the field. Now he's got the stew. He's going to go in, has this meat prepared. He comes into his dad. He says, okay, dad, let's get this thing done. His dad said, whoa, hold on here. What's going on? I just got tricked. Son, I can't give you the blessing or the birthright. I already gave it to your brother. And it sticks. It's sealed. So guess what Jacob does? He is hightailing it for the country because his brother is going to come get him. He stole his blessing and he stole his birthright. Jacob heads off. And he's now by his mom. She sets it up to go to his uncle's house. In Hera. And he's headed off now. On his journey, something happens to Jacob. He gets tired like we all do. And he stops at a place and he grabs a rock for a pillow. That's because he didn't bring anything with him but a staff, the Bible says. If you're going on a trip, you bring a pillow. You hear me? Bring a pillow. That's important. He grabs a rock, slides it under his head, and he goes to sleep. Now let me show you something of God, what God has done. All of a sudden, we read here in Genesis chapter 28, he has a dream. And in his dream, he sees a stairway from earth ascending to heaven. And on that ladder, he sees in his, in his vision, angels descending and angels ascending. And then he sees someone at the top of the ladder. Over this whole thing, Jacob sees someone. And this is what it says. Verse 13 of chapter 28, listen to this. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, listen to this, here's the calling. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. He's going to get the land of Canaan. I'm going to give it to you. 
Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I, listen to this, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I, God says, you notice all the eyes in here? I, God says, will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now listen to what Jacob does in response to this. He's like, wow. See, isn't it interesting that God revealed himself to Jacob? And when God revealed himself to Jacob, something happened to Jacob. This was not Jacob's God, I don't believe, at this point until now. Listen to what Jacob says. He says this in verses 20 through 22 of chapter 28. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up will be God's house. And of that, and of that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So here's Jacob. He has this vision as he's running away from his brother. He just took the birthright and the blessing. He's going to his uncle's house. He's, he's running from his brother. God says, I'm gonna choose the second over the first. And the second now gets the birthright and the blessing. And all of a sudden on his journey, he has a vision and God reveals himself to Jacob. He sees God, the Lord God. He sees the Lord there above the staircase. And now the Lord talks to him and he makes a covenant promise with him. That's incredible. And what does Jacob do? Nah, God, I don't think I'll take that. I got this one, thank you. No. He built an altar there, set up a stone poured oil over the stone. And he says this, that this God, he will now be my God. If God would have never revealed himself to Jacob, would Jacob have ever come to that knowledge? No. We don't read about that happening to Esau, by the way. You don't read about it. Esau goes off to his uncle's house. He marries into the family, and he works for him. Now, he left his father's household with nothing but a staff running from his brother. He gets a promise from God, revelation of who God is. He says, you are my God, God. That's what you are. My God, you are my God. And he now goes, and he's been working now for his, his uncle, which is also his father-in-law. And he's been working there, and all of a sudden, he has a dream, the Bible says, as he shares this in chapter 31, he says, I had a dream once that something happened with the sheep and the goats and the rams and the ewes. It had to do with spots and speckles and stripes. And, and it had to do with this, that God said he saw that my uncle or my father-in-law was trying to rip me off. And so God says, I'm going to do something incredible here. You're going to basically plunder everything this guy's got because he's trying to cheat you. And you're going to have the speckled and the striped and this is going to be your sheep. And that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. So now he gets ready to leave with all of his herds and his, his two wives and their families and the, his whole entourage. He's going to leave his father-in-law without telling him why. Because he's sneaky, that's why. And because God said, go back to your father. Now he heads off and goes back. His father-in-law, Laban, begins to pursue after him. Why? Because he was going to get this guy. He's stealing everything from him, although he earned it. He's taking it all with him. And Laban pursues him, but on the way, something else happens. God appears in a dream to Laban and says, whatever you do, don't you say one word for against Jacob when you find him. God ain't playing. That is my man. And don't you mess with him. It's exactly what happened. 
Then it's very interesting as, as we see this thing move forward and as it escalates and goes along, we also know that now, now Jacob, he, he now marries. And then all of a sudden he has these 12 sons. And these are going to be the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And he takes them now and he moves them towards the land of Egypt. And there's a severe, 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 severe drought in the land. And one of his sons had been killed, he thought, but they sold his, their brother in slavery. And as they became in such want and desperation, guess what? Just at the right time, they find that Joseph is still alive. And he tells them, you bring the whole crew with you, Dad. I got you covered. And then at the very end of his life, as he's making his way there to Egypt, this is what God says to Jacob as he pours his compassion on this old man, as he pours his mercy out on him like he has his entire life. This is what God tells him. God spoke to Israel, or Jacob, in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God. The God of your father, he said, do not be afraid to go to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Look at the mercy, the goodness, the faithfulness, and the love of God on the one that he chose. Here Joseph had been gone for years. His father thought he'd lost him years ago. He says, no. I'm going to make you, Jacob, into a great nation, but it's going to be in Egypt. And by the way, you're an old man now, but my promises are still true to you. Your son that you love desperately will be the one who closes your eyes in death. God was true all the way through to the very end of Jacob's life. Not because Jacob was a savory character. Because he was so upright and righteous in all that he did. In fact, no, that's not exactly what Jacob was. But God says, that's my choice. Powerful to think about. And then he says, oh, by the way, in the fourth generation, I'm going to raise up a man. And he will come and he will set these people free. 430 years from that time. The nation of Israel had been in slavery to Egypt. And guess what God did? He called a man by the name of Moses, saved him in the Nile, raised him and brought him forth in the, in the desert, called him by the fire in the burning bush and said, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and you will set my people free. And God made for himself a nation from the promise and the choice he made with Jacob. Is God not incredible? We haven't even talked about Esau yet. See, God does what God does not because he needs my permission to do it. God does what God does because he is sovereign over all. God said this would happen. It will happen. What's so humbling to me about the gospel is, it's not about me working my way to God like every other religion in the world is striving to do. Christianity is built upon the truth of the word of God that God himself came to man. That he comes to you personally and calls you by name. And when he reveals himself to you like he did to Jacob, that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac, that he is that God, listen, something happens to you. It is only by the sovereign calling of God that you and I are in Christ Jesus today. Now, I work because I love my Savior. I'm not saved because of my work. Do you understand that? Any gospel that preaches that you somehow have to attain some way to the workings of God's love for you to be saved is a false gospel. It's not about works, folks. It's all by God's grace, his mercy, his compassion, his love, and his choosing that you are in Christ Jesus today. That's the only reason we're here. And if you're a Christian here today, listen, this ought to so encourage you 
to know just as God was faithful to Jacob, that God will be faithful to you, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. The one that sealed you by his Holy Spirit, that gave you a deposit that guarantees your inheritance, you will be blessed by God. It's going to happen for you. Not because you deserve it, because I know what I deserve. The wages of my sin is death. That's what I deserve. But God says, no, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bent their knee to Baal. God says, I have done this. You are in Christ because of what God has done, not because what you have done. Does that make sense? What an incredible truth. It is amazing. If you're a Christian this morning, you're loved by God. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, and he's calling your name today, you are loved by God. On the entrance of the gate, it says, whosoever will. When you get through the other side, it says, called by God. It's an incredible truth. And if you don't know Jesus today and he calls you today, by all means, make him your God today. Amen. Let's pray. We need to go. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. What an incredible truth, Lord. Lord, if there's anything that I have said that's made it confusing, Lord, I apologize to you in my weakness. But I pray, God, that in your strength, you will help people understand by your spirit this truth. We can wrestle with it, God. That's okay. We don't understand it all, but that's okay. In the midst of it all, at the end of the day, we just say, thank you, Father. Thank you. If there's anyone here, Father, that is not in Christ today, they've tried the works of religion it's empty. They've tried the steps of the church. It's all empty. They've tried all kinds of things, Lord, and the end of it all, it's all empty. But when they hear their name called, Father, their life changes immediately. Call them, Lord, today, we pray in Christ's name we ask. Amen. 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 You all have a wonderful week. Soon the ocean waves are peaceful and my heart breaks forth in song. Tis a rock of ages.